special Mythgard Academy section on Star Trek. Now, for those of you, you know, many of you have been following this over social media. Let me explain. Uh, for those of you who haven't, oh, wait, hang on a second. I almost forgot. One other setup thing I need to do. As I've been doing lately, I've been broadcasting our Mythgard Academy sections on Facebook Live. And I have a new microphone. So let's see how that works. Let me just set that up here in a quick second. I'm sorry, of course, one of the uh, one of the con- one of the results, right, of being with me all day long like this is that you get to see, you know you get to see me manage all my windows and things during the transitional period here. Okay. go. Let me get my microphone on here. All right. Okay. Okay. I think we're ready now. There we go. Excellent. All right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, Phil. You get to see the bones going into the soup. Something like that. All right, and we are even more or less on schedule. Well, we're close to schedule. We're only 20 minutes behind, 10 minutes behind schedule. Now, come on. Admit it, that after, you expected, after four hours of broadcast and doing, what have we done, one, two, three, four, five segments, uh, you thought we'd be more than 10 minutes behind, didn't you? But we're doing not too bad. Okay. Um, very good. Okay. Excellent. Oh, I see. Vipers grading papers and watching Signum. Very good. Glad to to help. This will be a uh, this will be a particularly fun distraction during paper grading. Viper. All right. <laughs> Where there's a whip, there's a way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's the other thing you don't see going on uh, <laughs> behind the scenes is <laughs> the whip cracking involved in keeping me on time. Ah, so true, so true. Okay. Um. <laughs> Excellent. All right, I'm going to start this here. Very good. Okay, so just a, a little quick background before we begin. So uh, I am... Um, uh, this is that I've been watching Star Trek now. I started it during the last calendar year, actually. It's been a little bit protracted. Um because I started it last year in honor of the 50th anniversary uh, of uh, of the original Star Trek, um, because I, you know, I, my my own history with Star Trek was kind of patchy. I mean, I was not I was not anti Star Trek. I was always interested in Star Trek, but I'd never really um, I'd never really uh, spent that much time with it. You know, I'd never really done all that much with it. Um, I'd seen some of the original series here and there, you know, when I was, especially, uh, you know, when I was younger, I watched some of the next generation, um, uh, back when I was in high school, I have to admit, um, uh, sort of dating myself and, and I know some of you as well. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I, 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 I was, I was, but I'd never seen any of Deep Space Nine. I'd never seen Voyager. I'd never, I never, and, and 
I'm a completionist. I really like to see things all the way through. So, um, wanting to honor the 50th anniversary and seeing that I could get the original series and the next generation and deep space nine and Voyager, uh, on Netflix, I said, you know what? I'm just going to go, I'm going to watch it through from the beginning in chronological order. I've been putting in the movies when they come in in chronological order. Um, and it's been really great. I have so much enjoyed that. So I've watched the whole original series, all of the next generation. I'm excuse me, almost done with deep space nine. Um, I confessed this the other day, so I'm at I'm I'm like two thirds of the way through season seven of Deep Space Nine. I have come right up to, um, I've come right up to the beginning of like the isn't a seven part sequence at the end, you know, the last series of episodes, which is a you know this sort of continual seven part thing. I haven't started it yet, um, and I've been on it for like two weeks, and I haven't watched it yet. And I I, I was realizing I, I was catching myself. Um, by saying that, like, basically, I sort of realized that I was actually procrastinating beginning that final sequence because when it, when I do, then Deep Space Nine will be over, you know, and and I and and I won't have any more Deep Space Nine to look forward to. Um, so, um, I uh, I'm, so I'm almost done with Deep Space Nine. I'm through. I'm through season four of Voyager, which I've loved actually. Season four was amazing. I I, I was not a huge fan of Voyager seasons one through three. Season four really just was was incredible. I was very impressed. Um, Karita, my favorite Star Trek character is Worf by far. Uh, one of the greatest things was when I discovered that Worf was going to join Deep Space Nine as well. I mean, uh, many of you will remember me tweeting when when some of you told me that um, about how much I loved Worf and then how much I loved Deep Space Nine. And you guys, well, you guys tweeted me and were like, you know that he joins Deep Space Nine, right? And uh, season two, I think it was. And I was like, and there's all my wishes come true. You know, it's fantastic. Um, Karita, you know, my favorite Worf moment in Deep Space Nine. My favorite Worf moment is uh, uh, in the uh, Take Me Out to the Holosuite episode when uh, Cisco is teaching them to play baseball and he calls for some infield chatter uh, when the Vulcans are batting. And, you know, most of them are most of them are saying, oh, he can't hit, he can't hit. And Worf shouts out, death to the opposition! That was, that was one of my favorite Worf moments. Um, anyway, so yeah, big fan of Deep Space Nine. Um, so I decided to do this uh, class democratically. Because uh, I was really interested to see what episodes you guys would like to do. I've only been through many of them once, so I didn't feel, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to to just sort of uh, inflict my first opinions, my my, my first impressions on you. Uh, and so I really wanted to, uh, um, I really wanted to to uh, to see what you guys had to say. Um, so the number one. Uh, so we had a nomination process and an, a, a voting process that I've been doing by social media. The um, the landslide uh, uh, winner of the overall top episode was Darmok uh, from uh, The Next Generation, which was totally not a surprise to me. I rather expected that and was quite hoping for it, actually, because I'm very interested uh, to talk about Darmok and the unusual language of the Temerians uh, that we uh, meet in it. Um, we're going to start with that tonight. I also wanted to do uh, some discussion of one of the original series. Uh, uh, the City on the Edge of, of uh, Forever It was uh, also a very, very high vote getter. Um, and I wanted to, to sort of talk about both The Next Generation and the original series. You can tell that I'm not just picking my favorites because we're not going to talk about Deep Space Nine tonight, which is totally my favorite. So um, let's talk about Darmok here to begin. So uh, for those, just to give some context, for those of you who don't know, we're going to be talking about an encounter with an unusual alien race, which 
Well, it uh, it very quickly in the episode uh, brings uh, Captain Picard from this state to this state, uh, which I thought was kind of a fun contrast. Um, what is it exactly that makes uh, Captain Picard uh, lift his eyebrows like this? And of course, the answer is the unusual language uh, of the uh, Temerians that they, you know, this this new race that they are meeting, um, with whom the Feder- no one from the Federation has ever succeeded uh, in communicating. Now, this, of course, is important uh, and significant uh, in the uh, uh, in the Star Trek world. Because uh, they have this universal translator, right? Now, I have to admit, the universal translator is my least favorite Star Trek element. Um, I, 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 as soon as the universal translator, like, was mentioned, you know, in Star Trek, my first reaction was, oh, come on now. Um, that's... Um, that's so cheating, right? Uh, you know that's that's that is that is so cheating. Um, so and I'm I'm not wanting to talk about it as like a linguistic device. Um, what I'm really interested, what what I what I'm sort of disappointed by um, during the uh, you know, about about the Universal Translator is that it's through it you lose a whole bunch of potential uh, for like uh, you know uh, elements in the uh, uh, communication you know and, and and translation like how the encounter with other cultures is both on the one hand made simpler but also really there's a there's like cheating involved in having a universal translator um, so um, I, I now you know P- Peter Ribsky sort of, sort of uh, uh, Pointing out how you know Google can't Google Translate can't get some languages like Finnish right, uh, but the uh, the Universal Translator can do every you know language in the galaxy. Yeah, see, but Peter, my objection is not even the practicality of it. I'm totally willing to buy that, right? I mean, I'm just this is my approach. By the way, whenever I, I watch Star Trek, when they tell me something, I just buy it, right? That's that's I, I you know I, I learned early on. This is the way to do it, right? So, you know, they tell me they have a universal translator. I don't question that, right? And I agree the Babelfish is cooler. Um, oh, oh, hey, KDB209, you're here. Did you hear you won a drawing? Write to donate at signamu.org and, and, and claim your prize. Um, anyway, so, um, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm I, the universal... I'm willing to accept the universal translator. But again... I feel that it flattens things a lot, right? The way in which, uh, you know, now we're like, we're conversing with these alien cultures that are totally strange in English, right? And there's very little, you know, sometimes the body language can be weird, but often, you know, like tone of voice, body language expressions um, just seem to translate perfectly, right? And again, it's, I'm fine. I can accept that. But I feel like there's a a lot of opportunities kind of lost in not having to deal with those kinds of, uh, with those kinds of, uh, uh, translations. So I was particularly interested to see them addressing this kind of question and dealing with the situation where the universal translator doesn't just take care of things, right? Um, so, um, um, this is where we're, uh, this, this is where we start. So let's hear the, uh, the, the, the language of the, of the Temerians. Um, here's the initial encounter, which confuses everybody, which demonstrates the confusion of the Federation folks. Rye and Jerry and Luca. Rye of 
Lewane. Lewane under two moons. Jiri of Umbaya. Umbaya of crossroads. And Lunga. Lunga, her sky gray. Picard tries to be polite. Rai and Jiri at Lunga. <laughs> Love that expression. Um, but uh, yeah, so he he looks pained, uh, but you know he's 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 trying. He's trying to uh, uh, to see how this could work. One of my other favorite expressions from this is uh, this one right there from Troy. She looks like vaguely outraged, right? Like, how can this be happening? Data's confusion is also interesting. He is especially, uh, uh, you know, perplexed at the inability to understand. One of the things I thought they played with, like this look from him here. (laughs) That pained look as he turns back. Um, Clearly. I love the fact that they're playing with it. Like these people are almost helpless, right? When the universal translator fails them, um, they're 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 almost uh, helpless. And it's interesting because, in some ways, you know, my first reaction to this episode was like, as they're all looking at each other and looking stunned, I'm like, you know, okay, that's um, that's not that weird, right? I mean, okay, like I don't understand exactly what they're saying either. But there are things to latch on to, right? They're using words which the you know the universal the universal translator is rendering as English, right? Um, like at crossroads. Okay, I, I understand what crossroads are. Like you know, so the, I, but clearly these people have no have no practice in trying to 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 get something that isn't just kind of laid out for them, right? Um, so oh, I see we have completed our drawing, Karina. Congratulations, you win. Uh, so you get to choose from among our uh, our door prizes there. Let me know if you need me to remind you of your options there. Um, but um, anyway, okay, so we see the fear and puzzlement in the faces of the Enterprise crew. Um, we can get these recognizable words and concepts, um, but again, they're just kind of helpless to figure this out. Let's let's look at the discussion that the crew has about this, which I think you know gets at some really interesting issues uh, about the the Tamarans and their language here. The Tamarian ego structure does not seem to allow what we normally think of as self identity. Their ability to abstract is highly unusual. They seem to communicate through narrative imagery, a reference to the individuals and places which appear in their mytho-historical accounts. It's as if I were to say to you, Juliet on her balcony, an image of romance. Okay, no, Dr. Crusher, hang on now. That was not bad, Dr. Crusher, but there's so much more that you could say about that. So hang on a second. Uh, Troy is exactly right. That's a great illustration, uh, Counselor Troy. Appreciate that. Um, But think about this for a second. What is the effect of communicating this way? How does this language structure work? How could this kind of language structure work? The main point that I would make, the main thing that I find so striking about this concept of communicating through this kind of metaphor, through these kinds of references, is not how difficult it is to understand. Of course, it's difficult if you don't know the references, but the richness, the potential richness of this language. Um, and again, so this, what Dr. Crusher's kind of poor, really uh, 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 limited um, 
it doesn't just convey something romantic, right? Juliet on her balcony would convey, conveys many things, right? Through that one phrase, think about all of the different nuances that can be conveyed by, from people who know Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, right? Yes, love and romance, but what about love? What element, like what, what, what moment of love? It's not about consummated love, right? It's not even just about longing. Juliet on her balcony, right, would convey that moment when the beloved uh, uh, shows mercy, Right. That conversation that they have on the balcony is a really important one. But of course, it's also distance. Right. So this idea of unconsummated, uh, separated and yet requited love. Now, it could even be used in a completely non erotic context. Right. That is to say, if you had a situation where someone was, um, you know, sort of uh, in a sort of a confrontation like that, where there was division, like where there were obstacles, like, you know, a, a, a desired end before which there were obstacles that had to be overcome, apparently insurmountable obstacles, right? That could be another thing in which um, uh, in which Juliet at her balcony could be deployed, right? By combining that with other images. you can, So, you know, the, 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 the number one thing that strikes me about the Tumerian language is that it is fundamentally poetic rather than uh, than prosaic, right? They don't use prose. What they're doing is essentially poetry, just a series of poems, um, you know, a series of poetic images, a series of poetic metaphors. Um, and again, the point is not that it's limited. The point is prose is so much more limited, right? There's so much that you can do and so many different ways in which these metaphors can be applied. So love this concept. Um, again, I think Troy's on the right, uh, uh, on the right level. Now, what Data was saying here at the beginning about the Temerians not having a sense of individuality, I'm a little bit less clear on that. That is to say, like, I get the fact that, like, their mytho-historical, you know, tales mean a lot to them, right? Um, But I'm not sure that I'm tracking with how that leads to, like, a lack of individuality. So I'm not quite sure exactly how data's uh, thing fits there, but we'll, we'll sort of see as we, uh, um, as we go. And yeah, Erekeb, that's a really great point. It's one of the things that kind of confused me too. Um, Erekeb says the individ- the individuality thing's a little strange uh, since the Temerians always relate events to names. Yeah. I mean, it's, and based on that previous discussion that we saw, there didn't really seem to be, um, uh, there didn't really seem to be any lack of uh, lack of individual expression or any uh, uh, any sort of peculiar. I mean, it's not like talking to the Borg, right? You talk to the Borg and you get a pretty clear sense of you are not speaking to an individual, right? You are speaking to someone who is merely, you know, an element of the collective. I, 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 I don't yet see much evidence to think about the Temerians in exactly that way. And st- indeed. You could say they have a, a a very significant community, kind of communal structure, right? Um, indeed, of course, you know, you guys, you know what this mostly made me think of. I'll be totally honest. This totally made me think of Signum staff discussions. Um, because, of course, I tend to talk 
to signum people in Tolkien references, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, and because it conveys so, again, if you know the context, it conveys so much, right? Um, you know, I can say something like, this is not quite a Hurin in the Fens of Serek kind of situation, but, you know, and everyone knows what I'm talking about, right? So, uh, so yeah, exactly, Erekeb, I can talk about, you know, uh, uh, Sam when the star shone, right? Exactly. Uh, we do this all the time, right? This is how, um, this is how we, very, we very frequently communicate. So what it indicates, again, to me, I don't necessarily see a, a, a lack of uh, individuation. Um, what I do see is a communal experience, right, that is clearly being drawn upon. And therefore, what seems to be sort of obviously a kind of a closed society, right? They, they, there doesn't seem to be any real recognition in the Temerians that everyone else isn't going to get the references. I try to, I do try to stay on this side of that line, right? Uh, uh, it, with the Tolkien references to remember that not everybody's going to get them all the time. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, so I, I, um, We'll, we'll, we'll see. Anyway, let's, let's, let's keep going. Sorry, uh, Dr. Crusher, I cut exactly. you off there. Imagery is everything to the Tamarians. It embodies their emotional states, their very hmm. thought processes. Expresses? It's how they communicate, and it's how they think. If we know how they think, shouldn't we be able to get something across to them? No, sir. The situation is analogous to understanding the grammar of a language, but none of the vocabulary. If I didn't know who Juliet was or what she was doing on that balcony, the image alone wouldn't have any meaning. That's correct. For instance, we know that Darmok was a great hero, a hunter, and that Tanagra was an island. But that's it. Without the details, there's no understanding. It is necessary for us to learn the narrative from which the Tamarians draw their imagery. Given our current relations, that does not appear likely. Agreed, Data. In order to be able to understand them, you have to be able to understand the stories, right? Just as if you want to be able to <laughs> make sense of my text, you'll need to understand uh, Tolkien references. Um, exactly. Let's look at... Here's... Um, this is an internal discussion. So this is b- back a little bit in the episode during that first sequence when they encounter them. Uh, of course, after the failed initial attempt at communication... Uh, both the the line is still open, but the crews are sort of talking uh, amongst themselves, right? So this is uh, the Temerians talking amongst themselves, uh, and let's see what we can make out of this. Shaka, when the walls fell, Darmok, Darmok, Rai and Jiri and Lunga, Shaka. When the walls fell, Zina at Anzo, Zina and Vakar, Darmok at Tanagra, Shaka, Mirab, his sails unfurled, Darmok, Mirab, Tamok. <laughs> the irrefutable argument. The river, Tamok. Darmok and Gilad at Tanagra. There we go. Um, so, notice something here. Uh, Kareda, you were asking about rank. Like, if they have no sense of individuation, you know, uh, like, w- w- would they 
yeah, they do have rank. And what's more, there's clear, there's, again, I'm willing to buy sort of a communal story, like where community is important and community experience is important. I don't really see hive mind going on here. I'm not, I'm not tracking with data's analysis on that one. Now he's smarter than I am. So maybe he knows something I don't. Um, but, um, but I'm not seeing that. I love the way that this episode unfolds because we don't really know much of anything yet. Right. And yet we can figure it out, right? Let's 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 do this again with commentary. You can tell by the tone and the body language of the captain what this means. Shaka, when the walls fell. Now, notice we get two different sets of cues here. One are the actual words themselves. We don't know what Shaka is, but when the walls fell. Okay, that was when something bad happened, right? So we know it's something bad. We didn't even need to be told that, though, because we get his tone of voice and his body language. He's hanging his head and he's turning around. Um, and he said, this is about, clearly it's about, it's about failure, disaster of some kind, right? Now notice something. Um, this is one of the really interesting things that I think that this, this episode really kind of opens up about poetic expression. Right? On the one hand, poetic expression, as I said, can be far richer. With one single phrase, um, you can convey metaphorically, poetically, an incredibly wide array of really rich multiple meanings Right, um, that are really cool. But it can also be, when you're trying to understand it like this from the outside, it can, it can, it'll convey less. Right, Not knowing the story of Shaka... When the walls fell, we can kind of make some assumptions, right? Like it kind of means, it kind of means failure, right? It kind of means like, so like that didn't work. That seems to be what he's saying. But obviously, surely the story of Shaka when the walls fell conveys more to these people than just that was a failure, right? Um, but that's all we got, right? But okay, but, it, but that's still a start. So we get that far. We have a suggestion, right? You can see from his his hand gesture, right? As he puts out his hand, this he's he's making a suggestion to Darmok. This is his idea, right? Darmok. A surprising suggestion, right? Pry and Jiri at Lunga. A counter suggestion. Pry and Jiri at Lunga. No idea what any of those things mean, right? Um, but he's suggesting uh, uh, he he doesn't like the Darmok suggestion. Shaka. That won't work, right? He's clearly dismissive of the counter-suggestion of his first officer. Two more suggestions, right? Two more counter-ideas. The captain is insistent on Darmok at Tanagra. This is what, this is the way that he's, this is the direction he's thinking, right? Oop, ah! I lost it. Hang on. Whoop, boop, back, back, back. Oh, good. I kept my place. Shaka. No, I didn't. Mira, his sails unfurled. With the gesture of pointing off with his hand. Right? He says, let's just leave. Let's get out of here. Right? Now, what does that mean? Who was that person and who, like, unfurled their sails, right? Again, we can tell the kind of thing. And he seems to be saying, let's just give up and go away, right? Uh, you can tell he's impatient with the suggestion. The captain is now sitting again. 
and uh, staring up at his first officer, still insistent. No idea what that means. Yes, we do. Look at the reaction. All he does is say Tamok and his first officer snaps up to attention, right? So Tamok must be about uh must be about the uh the assertion of authority, right? Uh, uh Tamok means I'm the captain, dang it. <laughs> right? Uh and we're doing we're doing Darmok uh at Tanagra because that's what I insist on and he snap then stands up, stares the him down. River, oh, the river Tamok. He emphasizes the authority uh, move. Darmok and Gilad at Tanagra. Shaka. Oops. Sorry. I keep hitting the wrong button. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, so. He comes back to Darmok and, and Jalada at Tanagra, right? I love the... I'm going to go back to... Yeah, right here. I love the expression on the face of the first officer, right? As he's standing there at attention, but he's he's kind of giving the hairy eyeball to his captain there in the back of his head. But also notice how the captain has taken the knife of his first officer, and he's so he's holding his knife and his first officer's knife. That itself seems to be a cue. He's giving... He, so notice they're... They're making an attempt to communicate here, right? They know that they can't be verbally understood. It doesn't stop them trying. Um, but with his gestures, he is deliberately trying to pantomime something. And I think show something by the taking of the two knives, right? And the way that he's holding the knives, and not in a threatening way, but holding them with their hilts outward, his knife and his first officer's knife. And that seems to me significant too, right? Um... So I want to look at now when um, Picard begins to get it, right? Let's look at that here. There we go. Timber, his arms wide. Remember, we've already had some history with Timba, his arms wide, right? Uh, that was what he said when uh, when he gave them he gave him the fire when he gave Picard the fire the night before. Uh, so Picard has tumbled to the fact that Timba, his arms wide, means giving or something. Note something here. Uh, as we, we're going to get this little brief interlude here between Worf and uh, 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 and Riker, which I think is... Listen to how they communicate, right? Um, one of the things that I think is a really cool effect of this episode is that it, it not only kind of challenges the whole universal translator thing, but it also challenges us to kind of think about language and expression, our own language and expression, in some different ways, Right. Um, listen to how Worf and, and Riker communicate. Sensors are picking up an electromagnetic disturbance approaching the captain's position. Analysis? A variable induction field, possibly a life form. How close is it to the captain? The field is erratic, appearing and disappearing, but it appears to be moving toward him. Attacking? 
it took them a long time to get to these. See how tortuous that was, right? The Tamarians could have said that in three words, max, right? Um, a variable induction field moving towards him, uh, and that you know attacking. Look how 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 many questions Riker had to ask to drag out all of that information and the conclusions they drew from it. Um, I think it's really interesting to see this kind of this kind of contrast. Jez Hunt points out it's just gibberish. There's a bunch of that, um, and I'm fine with that. I again, I I always I always believe everything I'm told uh, in Star Trek without asking too many questions about it. That's my personal rule. Anyway, back to uh, back to Picard. Mirabi sails unfurled. Come, Shaka when the walls fell. Mirab, his sails unfurled. Right. So, while Picard is backing away, right. So he turns and says, "Are you running away?" Right. Um, and now notice what we've learned there. Uh, uh, Mirabe's sails unfurled is what the first officer said when he was suggesting that they leave, right? Now it seems to... We, we, we seem to have gotten the fact that that seems to refer to fleeing, right? Not just traveling, right? Not just going, but actually, uh, actually flight. Possibly cowardly flight, right? Um... And he tells him that's not going to—it's it's certainly not going to work to try to—for uh, uh, him to run away or to try to draw the other—the the, the, the creature away. Shaka, when the walls fell— See, it won't work. Shaka, you said that before. When I was trying to build a fire. Is that a failure? An inability to do something? Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. I, uh, I, I think the dialogue is really well constructed in this episode. I love the way, like, it, uh, an inability to do something. Notice how awkward that is, how clumsy that is. When Picard is trying to render into English, right, what these phrases mean, it almost always sounds really clumsy. And I think that's part of the point, right? Um... Yeah, kind of just like just like uh, Doctor Crusher's really weak attempt to translate Juliet on the balcony, right? I remember the words, but I don't understand. The monster's really patient, though, with their linguistic discussion, which is nice. Uzani, his army at Lashmere. At Lashmere. Was it like this at Lashmere? A similar situation to the one we're facing here. Sort of. Uzani, his army with fist open. A strategy with fist open? With fist open. His army with fist closed. With fist closed. An army with fist open. To lure the enemy with fist closed to attack that's how you communicate isn't it by by citing example by metaphor Ozani's army with with fist open Sukhat his eyes uncovered 
that's my favorite Picard expression from the from this episode. Uh, this uh, uh, this big smile as they finally communicate it. Now, um, uh, <laughs> he'll uh, see JJ. That's the interesting thing, right? This is to me the hardest part of the whole episode when Picard renders it in English. It's one thing for Picard to not understand their metaphors because he doesn't know the references, right? Um, but that the Temerian doesn't understand Picard as well is part of the problem, right? Um, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Dime thinks the monster is just trying to communicate with them, right? Dime, maybe, perhaps the monster has a completely different positional-based way of communicating with them, which they're just not getting at all, right? And pretty soon he's going to get frustrated. Um yeah, yeah. Now, watch, watch from here. Um, here's Picard at the end, having not mastered the language, but having gotten it. Watch Picard speak in this same language. Cinda, his face black, his eyes red. Now that I found really interesting. Cinda, his face black, his eyes red, is what the the Temerian captain said as he was dying. Right when he's writhing in pain from his wounds, he says that send to his face black, his eyes red, which I thought was an expression of pain at the time. Like that, you know, this is like someone who is in extremity here. Um, this guy, when he says it, it sounds like he's angry. Is he talking about the death of the captain? I think that that's what he means here, right? Like the captain, because they can sense what's going on on the planet as well. So he can tell that there's no other life sign down there and that his, his captain is dead and he's accusing him of killing him or something like that. Again, it's a little unclear, but we can kind of, we can kind of see it happening a bit. Tamak. The river Tamak. Oh, snap. Now, Picard has no idea what that means, right? He, but he is remembering when that put him in his place before, right? In winter. Dermak. And Jalad. At Tanagra. Dermak. And Jalad. On the ocean. So Karth, his eyes open. The beast of Tanagra. Ozani, his army. Shaka, when the walls fell. Love this exchange at the end. Um, what do we? Uh, what what can we see here? My favorite part is when Picard doesn't just repeat what he's heard, 
but when he extemporizes, right? Based upon the very narrow vocabulary he's learned. Because again, learning this from the outside without the rich narrative background to support it, these things become exactly as crude as Dr. Crusher suggested, right? If you haven't actually read Romeo and Juliet, which of course is the position of many people hearing this, but if you actually, don't actually know Shakespeare, Juliet on the balcony might mean no more to you than something romantic, right? Similarly, Shaka when the walls fell means a failure, something bad happened, right? Um, Temba, his arms wide, means I give you something, right? Um, But, uh, you know, so at the beginning when he says, uh, um, you know, the river Tamak, Dathan, the captain, never even said that, other than to his first officer that one time. Uh, So we have no reason to think that Picard understands that, right? Um this part. The beast of Tanagra. Uzani, his army. Shaka, when the walls fell. Right there. Those three things, right? Rosanna, his army. Shaka, when the walls fell. Um, he has no way of knowing whether he's doing that right, right? But he's he has been sensitive to the way in which those metaphors are being used, and he's able to put them together. The Beast at Tanagra. Why? Because that was one of the only narrative segments that he actually got from Dathan the Captain. Right? Um, And yes, uh, Ravenclaw, I think that is the really cool thing that we see here. Um, Picard has lived the tale that the language references. Right? He now understands uh, these... You know, he's able to improvise because he understands not just the fact that it's a metaphorical structure, right? But he has come to get more and to relate himself through his own narrative history to some of these things. And of course, we'll, um, uh, let's look at that next. This is his, nar- his own narrative response, uh, uh, right, of course, at the moment when Dathan the captain is dying. This is a story, a very ancient one, from Earth. I'll, um, I'll try and remember it. Gilgamesh, a king. Gilgamesh, a king. At Uruk, he tormented his subjects. He made them angry. They cried out aloud. Send us a companion for our king. Spare us from his madness. Enkidu, a wild man, from the forest, entered the city. They fought in the temple. They fought in the streets. Gilgamesh defeated Enkidu. They became great friends. Gilgamesh and Enkidu at Uruk. Notice how Picard tries to essentially translate it into at least a Temerian style metaphor at the end, right? Gilgamesh and Enkidu at Uruk. He tries, you know, to sort of couch the terms of his story 
in ways that sound like the way that the Temerians talk. But of course, he's actually telling a narrative. Um, so, for instance, he's using verbs, <laughs> right, as he speaks, which you'll notice is what they don't do, what the Temerians don't do. Um, no, they don't use a single verb. We never hear a verb from them at all. That's one of the uh, remarkable idiosyncrasies of their language, is not to use verbs. Um, and that itself is a really fascinating kind of concept. Because you'll notice, even when he's attempting to, not just to communicate an idea to Picard, but to tell Picard to do something, right? Um, he, uh, he doesn't use verbs, Right. So how do you say, I'm going to stand over here, you stand over there, and then when it comes and attacks me, you attack it. Right. That seems to be what he's trying to uh, communicate to Picard. And all he can do is kind of string together, um, uh, uh, string together um, uh, nouns and adjectives. Ah, JJ, you're right. Fell when the walls fell. Yes, you're right. That's a verb. Shaka, when the walls fell. You're right. You're right. Uh, but even that, of course, is only a subordinate verb uh, in a... Well, that's actually really interesting, J.J. Think about that grammatically for a second. Think about the phrase, Shaka, when the walls fell. Right? It sounds like a noun, Shaka, proper noun, modified by something. Right? When the walls fell is, uh, that's an adverbial clause. Shaka did what when the walls fell, right? Um, it's not an adjective clause. Can you have an adjective clause that starts with when? I don't think you can. There's like an implicit, uh, there's an implicit verb. Marianne is recalling unfurled as well, right? Um, yes, though that's a that's a, a past participle, right? With sails unfurled. Uh, uh, it's an adjective describing, it's based on a verb, right? Um, but, it's, uh, but it's describing the sails. Um, and yeah, uh, we're talking about Shaka when the walls fell. What is Shaka? The city? Is Shaka the city? Like the state as things were in Shaka when its walls fell? Or is Shaka a person uh, who was in a particular state when the walls fell? Right? Um, uh, yeah, Lyreland is saying there's no present tense. Well, you're not going to talk about any of these things in present tense because they're they're all past, right? These are all past stories. But, um, uh, but they don't even have, they don't even have verbs, much less the present tense. But anyway, so here's Picard, speaking with verbs and everything, and he can't help it. And you'll notice how when Picard renders it, even though he's trying to render it, uh, into, um, Dathan's Im uh, uh, idiom, the emphasis is on the verbs, right? What did they do? What happened next as he's telling the story? Um, at Uruk is what 
Dathan fixes on, right? As if he's he's holding that phrase, Gilgamesh and Enkidu at Uruk. So, by the way, what does that mean? What does that mean? Gilgamesh and, en- and Enkidu at Uruk. Based upon Picard's description, what does Gilgamesh and Enkidu at Uruk mean? How would we translate that into English? Notice what Picard has emphasized about the story. What is the story of Gilgamesh that he has emphasized? They became friends, right? So, uh, Cass, I agree. It's about um, it's about becoming friends, about unlikely friends, perhaps, Erukeb. But also, remember, not just unlikely, but destined, in a sense. Remember, the people cried out for somebody to for for the gods to send a friend to 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 Gilgamesh. He needed a restraint, right? So, the relationship between Enkidu and Gilgamesh is not just like were buds, right? They were fighting. The whole he spends most of his time describing first the bad things Gilgamesh the king was doing to the people, and then secondly his combat with Enkidu, right? Uh, as they're fighting all over the place, um, so they're in conflict with each other, and that conflict becomes the basis of their friendship. It's about uh, uh, companions, JJS. It's about peers, right? Like we are equals. I have met someone who is my match. That's, again, what Picard seems to be emphasizing about this element of the Gilgamesh story, right? There was no... He needed someone to restrain him, so the people prayed to the gods to send him somebody, right? Um, So they were in conflict. They were apparently enemies, but in fact, this was a friend that was being sent to Gilgamesh, someone who would be his peer, right? Um, But wait, there's more. The the new friends went out into the desert together, where the great bull of heaven was killing men by the hundreds. And Kidu caught the bull by the tail. Gilgamesh struck him with his sword. (laughs) Gilgamesh. (laughs) They were victorious. But Enkido fell to the ground, struck down by the gods. And Gilgamesh wept bitter tears, saying, He who was my companion through adventure and hardship is gone forever. And that, of course, is the the moment of the captain's death. Um, as Picard, <laughs> I liked. I was laughing at uh, uh, Ravenclaw's comment: <laughs> "Way to tell a story to a dying guy for telling his death." Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, because, of course, that parallel becomes really clear, right? As you have, I mean, already. Picard is clearly established from the beginning, establishing a parallel between Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra and Gilgamesh and Kidu at Uruk. Right? It's not the same story. Even from what Picard has already learned, it's clearly not the same story. Right? But 
but nevertheless, that's his response, right? When he's asked, when he, when uh, the captain wants him to tell him a story, he responds with Gilgamesh and Enkidu at Uruk, which, which, which is th- there's a likeness there, um, but it conveys something different, as we were just discussing. And here, the applicability of it becomes even more clear, right? Um, as they talk about fight, as he talks about fighting the bull of heaven, when the two of them were, and exactly how they kill the bull of heaven in Picard's account is very similar um, to the uh, uh, to the to the combat that he and Dathan were just having with the electromagnetic dude, like the monster. Right where they were trying to split up and attack it from from either side, one would hold it by the tail while the other one stabbed it with his sword. Like that's that's exactly right what he was describing. So the the second part of the story, having established what Gilgamesh and Enkidu at Uruk means, Picard now goes on to uh, connect it more intimately with them through this parallel, and it of course results in Enkidu's death, not the combat, right? He doesn't die. The bull doesn't kill him, right? He's taken from Gilgamesh by the gods. The, the, um, so if you were to say, uh, how would you say this in Temerian? To make an allusion to Gilgamesh's grief, um, you know, like, I don't know, uh, you know, Gilgamesh, his face cast down or something like that. When Gilgamesh is sad after Enkidu dies, it's not just about loss, right? Not just about the unfortunate death of his friend. It's about his friend being taken from him, right, by the gods. That what they had together, that, 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 what, peer ship that they had um, is envied by the gods, that nothing will be impossible, for the two of them. Um, and so Enkidu is taken away. There's a kind of resentfulness in Picard's uh, development of the story there, right? An acknowledgement. You're dying, right? As you hear this, you are dying. And this, you know, this respect that I have gained for you, this way that I have come to to, 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 to accept and to see you, as my equal, like Gilgamesh and Enkidu, and now you're being taken away from me as soon as I like the, in the practically in the moment that I have acknowledged that and recognized that right now. Uh, notice the other interesting thing about this: if he, if Dathan is Enkidu, Picard is Gilgamesh, right? Um, save us from his madness. Um, That's pretty poignant too, big picture, right? Um, The rage of the king and the destruction he is wreaking on his own people and his people crying out for help, right? To be saved from the madness of the king. Um, it's hard to imagine. As I recall, this is post-Locutus of Borg, is it not? Um, one wonders if it is not only, you know, if in, the, if in these moments, as Picard is ending the story, and, you know, with 
his very solemn expressions if he is thinking not only of the death of this, his new friend, but is also connecting himself with Gilgamesh, right? Um, and, you know, so, yeah, the, um, uh, the fact that he, there was a time, right, when he was, when his own life, his own actions, it was different, obviously, but parallel in some ways, uh, when he may at least have sort of felt like, um, like Gilgamesh in that way. Um, so, I mean, this is a, this is a really, I, this is a wonderful moment. Um, wonderful because it takes the poet, this, uh, this is really, for me, clearly the high point of the, I mean, the dramatic moment, of course, is when he returns and speaks to the Temerian first officer in his own language. That's pretty awesome. But this is really the heart of the moment, right? Um, where after the uh, contemplation that this episode has done into this kind of poetic language and this mechanism, right, of uh, of applying mythological reference to current situation and thinking about that as an as a as a means of expression, as a means of conveying meaning, and then to embody that uh, within uh, to embody that within. Uh, uh, the lives of the two of them, right, through this separate tale by you know, using Gilgamesh and Enkidu uh, as this sort of matrix for conveying, and look at the richness of meaning, right? Um, his new respect for his new friend, his grief at his loss, um, uh, the bond between them, his own uh, his own self doubt, and uh, uh, and I mean, it's this is all. This is all pretty good, right? This is this is a really really high moment. Um, this was why I loved this episode. I, I mean, I, I was interested in the concept, but this moment is what I really loved most about this episode. Now, several of you have um, uh, several of you have mentioned what I also find a sort of insuperable obstacle. Um, that is to say. And this, for me, is another kind of classic Star Trek moment, honestly. Um, the thing that I don't... <laughs> I see you guys taunting me, Corey, with slides unfinished. Anyway, uh... <laughs> um, uh, the... Um, okay, so... <laughs> you distracted me from my train of thought. Um, yeah, okay, so... My, my my experience with watching Star Trek, um, especially the original series in The Next Generation, I will say, much less so Deep Space Nine, um, it's not really primarily about... I find most of it, it's not about immersion into sub-creation, exactly. That is to say, when I'm watching a Star Trek episode, I find that I don't really demand... Um, I don't really demand consistency of the world. Like, I don't need to know. I, again, I, 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 I take their word for it, right? So here, I act, I actively try not to think too carefully about the Temerian's language. Because when I do, I find it difficult, right? Um, I find that when I actually examine... It's sort of like the same thing I do with the scientific language, right? I mean, I majored in astrophysics in college, and I try not to uh, you know, put on my physicist hat when I'm listening to Geordi LaForge talk about what he's planning to do, right? And I find that if I don't 
do that, right? Then I'm totally cool. Or I'm just like, okay, like let's do a positron pulse. Absolutely, that sounds like a fabulous idea. We'll 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 move through that. So trying to you know each one presents each episode presents an interesting situation, right? An interesting kind of puzzle, uh, and I just kind of focus on that. So here it's the communication with the Tamarians, right? But I can't really lose myself in the world, right? I can't really, I at the end of the day, I can't really buy the Tamarian language for exactly the reason that so many of you have already brought up, which is, how does language acquisition work among the Tamarians, right? How do they even do it? Um, so this is, of course, the captain trying to explain to Picard what Darmok and Jalada Tanagra means. You used the words, Tamba, his arms wide, when you gave me the knife and the fire. Too many verbs, Picard. Could that mean give? He's trying Temba, to nail it, nail it down to a verb. His arms wide. Darmok. Give me more about Darmok. Darmok on the ocean. Dalmok. Let's use rocks. That'll help. Dalmok. The ocean. Dalmok on the ocean. A metaphor of being alone, isolated. Dalmok on the ocean. Good theory, Picard. same island as Darmok. Okay, we're getting somewhere. Darmok and Jalad at, at Tanagra. There you go. The beast at Tanagra. Okay. The beast. There was a, a creature at Tanagra. Darmok and Jalad, the beast of Tanagra. Don't tell me. They arrived separately. They, Here's Picard they building a narrative. Together against a common foe, the beast at Tanagra. What kind of beast? Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Darmok and Jalad on the ocean. They left together. But I thought the ocean represented loneliness. Darmok and Jalad on the ocean. The ocean. Send up. It's. Face. 
you'd hoped that something like this would happen, didn't you? You knew there was a dangerous creature on this planet, and you knew from the tale of Darmok that a danger shared might sometimes bring two people together. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. You and me here at Aladrel. <clears throat> so here's the problem. That's how he conveys the narrative, the significance of Darmok and Jalada Tanagra. Again, Picard is getting it, right? He, but clearly, what he's getting is a, a very kind of loose and... Like, this is like the Dr. Crusher version, right? Like, oh, something romantic, right? He's getting, he's getting that much, but he's not getting any more than that, right? Um... So yes, when I actually stop and think about it and say, how do young Tamarians learn the stories? You can communicate this way. Right? Again, I do it all the time. You can communicate this way, but only after like the narratives have to come first. And narratives famously involve verbs. Things happen in narratives. Um, again, it's not that... Uh, I, I can't understand how any of the Temerians have any understanding of these myths themselves. How can they get access to the full richness of these, uh, of these images, right, of these metaphors, without, in order to be able to apply them metaphorically, without the narrative structure first, right? Uh, and I, I just, that to me seems an insoluble problem. I don't understand it. You know, and I'm not saying that an answer cannot be um, devised to that, but I am saying this episode makes no attempt to devise one, right? And it, but, but again, but to me, that's a classic kind of Star Trek moment, right? That's not the sort of thing that Star Trek is interested in. There are some moments, right? Very, very prominent ones where star, the Star Trek world does invest Right, does invest in subcreation and you know like with the Klingons, with the Borg, and those are of course the best and most memorable parts. I think is not a coincidence, but um, so the, it's not that Star Trek never does that kind of subcreation, but it's not its default mode. This kind of a thing, this kind of an episode where we encounter a random group of people that we're never going to encounter again in our exploratory journey, and there's a there's a thing. But if you but if you think it through all the way through, it, it doesn't. It ends up you know, kind of leading me to a dead end. Um, so I prefer not to think about that. And I prefer instead to think about this challenge, think about the way that it challenges, uh, th- that it sort of prompts me to think about language, appreciate the really brilliant way that they bring so many things together there in, uh, uh, in the Gilgamesh moment. And, uh, and there we go. And so, yes, Yana, that for me, of course, this is, this is also why I love Deep Space Nine best, right? Because Deep Space Nine, Nine does do that, right? In Deep Space Nine, we do get this long, consistent investment in this world and, and in this kind of story building and sub-creation. And I have a, a shameless bias in that direction. So that is exactly what I liked about DS9 so much. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, see, Yana, it does not surprise me that in the books they explore the Temerians more and explain some of this. Now, I mean, I'd be interested to hear their explanations. Um, again, it's not that I think that explanations could not be uh, devised for these things. Um, but again, as I say, this episode is not interested uh, in in uh, in devising them, which is why 
neither am I, right? I try not to think about it. I try not to ask myself those questions because this, that doesn't really seem to be something that the episode itself here is really interested in. Um, with that in mind, or not with that in mind, uh, let's transition. I want to, I wanna, I, I, as much fun as it is to talk about Darmok, I, I want to make sure we get to talk about the original series a little bit here too. So, uh, uh, so let's do that. Let's shift back, hit the way back button in more than one way, and go back to the original series. Uh, this is the city on the edge of forever. So um, this um, this is Kirk and Spock exploring this planet. Whereon is this strange thing? Right. Let's um, uh, hear the explanation of this thing that they have found incredible power it can't be a machine as we understand mechanics and what is it a question since before your son burned hot in space and before your race was born i have awaited a question what question is there a specific question you've awaited what are you that's probably I not it Are you machine or being? I am both, and neither. I am my own beginning, my own ending. I see no reason for answers to be couched in riddles. My answer is simply as your level of understanding makes possible. Oh, snap. <laughs> Spock does not like Time that. Time portal, Captain. A gateway to other times and dimensions, if I'm correct. As correct as possible for you. Your science knowledge is obviously primitive. Oh, the burn! Really? <laughs> A noise box? <laughs> A gateway to your own past, if you wish. Oh, yeah, that's it. Okay. Gateway to your own past. All right. Um, this episode from the beginning is all about the unexplained, right? They come down, they have no idea what this energy source is. They come down here and they're known the wiser, right? They meet this thing. Are you a machine or an entity? Which is kind of a strange way to catch the question. Um, yes, I am both. Right? And he gives all these wonderfully Bombadilian answers, as you guys are pointing out. Uh, uh, you know, do not do not go to the gate of forever for answer. He will say both no and yes. Um, but um, anyway, it's... Uh, <laughs> Ravenclaw says, oh, how I love me some mythopoeic gates. Exactly. It's for, But see, but that's the point. This is one of the things that I think is really fascinating about uh, several moments in the original series where there is this, um, the, you know, sort of campy special effects and things like that. There's almost revel in it, right? Um, they're not giving any explanation. Remember what, what I was just talking about, about sort of offering no real explanation for these questions? From the beginning, this episode is giving us no information of any kind. In fact, flat refusing and just saying even Spock, sadly, can't understand. He's 
too, his understanding is too primitive to get it. So we're being at, they're being asked to say like, this is just a mystery, right? You can't get it. You can't understand why is, what is this thing? Why is it here? How does it do what it, what, what it does? It's not just that these things are presented to us in the episode and then, you know, we're kind of left to wonder. We are explicitly informed that no information is going to be forthcoming on this, right? It's the entire framework of, uh, of this episode is that kind of unexplained mystery, right? So, okay. All right. Uh, that's, um, I see what we're dealing with here. So then we get, um, Bones jumps through, right? Bones is like, you know, injected himself with a whole bunch of some drug and gone crazy. And so he throws, he jumps through the gate and then they try to get in touch with the enterprise and the enterprise doesn't respond because your vessel, your beginning. <laughs> Can I tell you a funny story? So as I said, I've been watching these on Netflix, right? Um, and I usually, uh, I usually put the audio through my little Bluetooth, um, which doesn't fit very tightly in my ear. But anyway, I, I usually, you know, while I'm like doing the dishes and stuff like that. Um, so I was, I was watching Star Trek as I was sitting next to my wife one night. <laughs> And she had fallen asleep. So I'm sitting in bed with my phone uh, uh, watching the original Star Trek. And the stingers kept waking her up because the dialogue is so quiet. I had to have it turned up really loud to understand the dialogue. And all of a sudden it would go, Donna! Really loudly. And it would bleed. I'd be like, ah! And it would bleed through my Bluetooth that actually woke my wife up out of sleep. Um, anyways, I, I ended up having to stop trying to watch Star Trek in bed at all. But anyway, okay. So their ship, their beginnings, the origin of life has disappeared entirely because Bones went back in time. McCoy has somehow changed history. You mean we're stranded down here? With no past, no future. Well, no future seems a little... I'm frightened. (laughs) Earth's not there. At least not the Earth we know. We're totally alone. Pan up! Oh. <laughs> I love that. Okay. They are totally alone. Right. Um, and then the pan up into the sky. Right. So here they are in the galaxy. Now, this is, of course, a play on their normal state, which is right already tolerably isolated and alone flying around in their dinky little ship um, around the galaxy. Right. But this sense of aloneness that comes in upon them now is uh, is, you know, is 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 really strong, is really powerful. Right. But OK, so the they've um, they've gone away. Right. All well, they, everyone but them has gone away. All of Earth's history is past. How exactly does this happen? What could cause this to occur? We've been asked to not question things so far, just to kind of take things on faith because we can't possibly understand them. Right. So this seems to be the. But this is the crux, right? We've got to somehow figure out how to go back and fix this. That's the. That's the the whole uh, uh, focal point of the rest of the episode. So okay, so. Uh, Kirk and of Kirk and Spock are the ones who go back here. Uh, 
turns out it's uh, in the 1930s in, uh, uh, in America that um, uh, Bones has jumped through. And we face the unpleasant facts. First, I believe we have about a week before McCoy arrives, but we can't be certain. Arrives where? Honolulu, Boise, San Diego. Why not outer Mongolia for that matter? There's a theory. There could be some logic to the belief that time is fluid, like okay. a river with okay. currents, eddies, backwash. And the same currents that swept McCoy to a certain time and place might sweep us there too. Unless that is true, Captain, we have no hope. Okay. Um, right. So again, I'm going with you there, right, um, uh, Kirk? If there are currents and eddies and backwashes in time, then the same current in time might sweep you guys both to the same place. Okay. Again, I'm fine with that. Um, that's good. So there's something here in this time that is what attracted them. I was going to say like a magnet, but that's shifting my metaphor. It's like a stream. So it channels them into a particular spot, right? So what is it that's special about this time, which is now, we already know is sufficiently special that it like destroys the entire earth when this thing happens. But, uh, but apparently, uh, it sort of draws them to it as well. So how does that, uh, how does that work? Let's see if we can learn more about that. I want to hear what she has to say. Yeah, me too. Yes, of course, Captain. Now, let's start by getting one thing straight. I'm not a do-gooder. If you're a bum, if you can't break off with a booze or whatever it is that makes you a bad risk, then get out. Now, I don't pretend to tell you how to find happiness in love when every day is just a struggle to survive. But I do insist that you do survive. Because the days and the years ahead are worth living for. One day soon, man is going to be able to harness incredible energies. Maybe even the atom. Edith Keeler calls all time soon. Harnessed to other worlds in, in some sort of spaceship. Yeah. And the men that reach out into space will be able to find ways to feed the hungry millions of the world, and to cure their diseases. They will be able to find a way to give each man hope and a common future. And those are the days worth living for. Our deserts will bloom. Development of atomic power is years away. Space flight years after that. Speculation. Gifted insight. But it will come. I find her most uncommon, Mr. Spock. Okay, Kirk, but let's think with our brains. So uh, uh, Spock was uh, just talking about, but is this an eddy in time? Is she an eddy in time? Um, I, uh, uh, um, interesting how both of them were just talking about this, right? Both of them were just talking about how there's like some reason that like, there's a reason to believe there's a reason to have hope that, um, uh, that, that like bones and we will be drawn to the same place because there's some kind of thing, right? There's some kind this is some kind of Eddie in time or something like, you know, Eddie in the river of time, uh, here. And then they encounter her, which as Kirk very quickly points out, 
this is pretty remarkable, right? This insight that she has into the future, um, you know, that she knows that there's going to be atomic power and she knows there's going to be space travel. And what's more, she foresees the Star Trekian future of like peace and plenty that's going to come after space travel, right? Um, now, Spock, Mr. It may be logical to think that, but immediately is like, tries to, is, starts dismissing it, right? Gifted uh, intuition, right? It's like a gifted, it, you know, she's, Got, she got lucky, right, in guessing this stuff. Um, uh, whereas Kirk is just like, I think she's cute, right? Um, both of them, in other words, don't pursue this idea, which Spock said, unless it's true, is like they have no hope, right? So what is? So she's it, apparently. Edith Keeler is the the Eddie in time. She is this sort of. She's the important thing, right? Which we can already tell. There is something unusual about her relationship to the river of time here. Okay. So we're getting that they've told us enough. They Spock and Kirk have told us enough to see that, but they themselves seem strangely resistant to it. We get more of this. Why? What is so funny about man reaching for the moon? How do you know? I just know. She just knows. I feel it. Yeah. I think that one day they're going to take all the money that they spend now on war and death... And make them spend it on life. Yes. I have foreseen Gene Roddenberry's utopia! You see the same things that I do. We speak the same language. The very same. I love the juxtaposition, right? Uh, you know, rude guy from shelter being embraced by bones, juxtaposed with the, the romantic interlude between uh, Kirk and Edith Keeler. So, okay. Kirk is asking her, how do you know? Right? She just knows. Her, her, she's not been t- told anything, right? She, she just has this, Sense, right? Yes, this is the 1930s, right? She just has this this intuition that it's going to happen, right? The the question, I mean, there are all these questions that open up, right? Why? How does she know? He asks the question and doesn't get an answer. How does she know? What makes her different? What makes her important, right? Um... So I was wondering if Kirk suspects that she's a time traveler, too. Yeah, she seems to say enough to show that she's not, right? Or, I mean, or that or she's a better actor than they are. Um, but, uh, yeah, several of you are saying she's read H.G. Wells. It's not to say that, like, wondering or speculating about this was unique in the 1930s by any means. Um, you know, the idea of space travel and, and even of, uh, of atomic power is, of course, not totally unknown in this period. It's not like you would have to be a prodigy in order to be even asking that question or, or thinking about that. But that's not the point, right? The point is the she is speaking prophetically. She's not just saying... Wouldn't it be cool if we... I bet someday we're going to travel in space because that'd be awesome, right? She's not saying that. She's prophesying. This is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then as a consequence of that, this is going to happen, and they know it to be historical, right? They know that, that to, they know that to be true. And remember, what's the whole premise of this? Why are they here in the first place? Their history has been d- d- deleted, 
right? The very history, the very, from a 1930s perspective, the very future that she is so confidently predicting has been eliminated, right, before they came back. Um, so again, this is this is the crux of the entire thing. Why can she, how can she be so sure? How can she um, uh, predict so confidently? How is, she just, she just knows, right? She just feels it. What is it that makes her feel? What is her relationship with time that establishes that? Then we learn more about her, about the future and her future. This is how history went after McCoy changed it. Here, in the late 1930s, a growing pacifist movement whose influence delayed the United States entry into the Second World War. While peace negotiations dragged on, Germany had time to complete its heavy water experiments. Germany. Fascism. Hitler. One Second World War. Because all this lets them develop the A-bomb first. There's no mistake, Captain. Let me run it again. Edith Keeler, founder of the peace movement. But she was right. Peace was the way. She was right, but at the wrong time. With the A-bomb and with their V-2 rockets to carry them, Germany captured the world. No. And all this because McCoy came back and somehow kept her from dying in a street accident as she was meant to. We must stop him, Jim. general happenings from these images but I can't trace down precise actions at exact moments Captain I'm sorry Spark I believe I'm in love with Edith Keeler Jim Edith Keeler must die Edith Keeler must die. The multiple ironies of this revelation are fascinating, right? I mean, of course, there's the sort of horrible personal irony uh, for Kirk, right? That this woman that he isn't, he is falling in love with, um, he's been, the, you know, the, the irony of the position that he's been placed in, right? He's been brought back not to save her, but to prevent her being saved. Uh, and that the way that you know that the the reversal of the sort of traditional protagonist mode, um, you would think it seems more uh, more logical, right? It seems more um, uh, more natural to assume that um, when the heroes have to go back, you know, somebody was must have been killed who wasn't supposed to die, especially if it's a great person who has this wonderful vision for the future, right? But no, actually, it turns out. It's the other way around, right? Um, the problem was that she lived and that they're in the position of having to make sure she doesn't get her life saved. That turns out to be the thing that Bones must have done was somehow prevent her dying. Um, now, 
so we get that level of irony. And of course, much is made of the, you know, since it's Captain Kirk and, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and Ca- Captain Kirk being who he is, much is made of, of the, uh, admittedly challenging emotional situation that this puts him in. Right. But it's, it's not just that, right. It's, uh, it's, it's clearly more than that. Um, because we get the other irony. I mean, I saw, you know, Ravenclaw, I saw you uh, joking about, um, uh, you know, down with pacifism, right? That, as Kirk says, she was right. She was right. She has this vision of the future. And she can help bring it about. She is going to be an important person. She is going to rise from running a soup kitchen in the slums to being like a world leader for uh, for 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 a peace movement that is going to to uh, very significantly affect uh, American policies, right? Um, she is going to, as she steps forward uh, to try to uh, actualize that vision, which again we as viewers of the show and you know Kirk and Spock know to be an accurate vision of the future, an accurate and in its way desirable vision of the future. Um, it's that very realization of that true future which eliminates that future, right? The, 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 the Roddenberry's utopia of, you know, the 23rd, 24th century is never going to happen because the woman who foresaw it pursues it. And the only way it can occur is if she is prevented from pursuing it. So, as I said, lots of real, um, uh, 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 really complex ironies going on in this situation, right? Um, uh, exactly, JJ. It's a self-defeating prophecy. It is. Um, which is, um, yeah, working for the perfect future destroys the perfect future. Exactly. Um, and uh, so that's... You know, this is a this is a really it, it's a really complicated moment. Again, some of it, some of the the larger issues there of the the kind of paradox that is happening, is um, um, submerged behind Kirk's more like personal trauma here, right? Um, you know, I'm falling in love with this woman. I think she's great, and now I find that I have to let her die. Right. That's my like our mission. If we're to accomplish what we came back to do and save the whole rest of the world, you know, I have to let her die Um, now. But here's the other thing. What about that other question that we were asked? How does she know? What is her relationship with time? Because it's not just that she's important in the sense that she's going to be a critical person who's going to play a role in history. Right. She has this weird relationship with time. What about her prophecies? What she's going to do is, in a sense, only indirectly related to her prophecies, but it's tied in as well, right? So because she has this weird relationship with time where she perceives somehow and in some way what's going to come in the future, that influences her actions, which will in turn influence the actions of others, which will in turn prevent that future from happening. But how does she know in the first place? Why does this random woman running a soup kitchen have this relationship with time. And once we find out that she's supposed to die, we stop asking that question entirely, right? It's just a question of, well, what are we going to do? You know, do we let her die or does he save her? Oop, sorry. 
meant to advance here. Here we go. The uh, final Edith Keeler scene. Notice the foreshadowing there, right? He stops her as oh. the car screeches to a halt. Stay right there. What is it? Look away. He's a... No, Jim. this vision this is the planet of course that the gateway is on but how it looks you know it looks kind of like vaguely earthy but it's just all kind of grayed out right this is like bland earth um which i think is a really interesting transition anyhow um lot, we see of course lots more of those ironies at work right why does she get into a traffic accident what kills her in the first place kirk does right by crossing the street with her and leaving her over there and saying and saying, stay right there. Had he just come, she just come with him across the street, she never would have died, right? So it turns out that the death that she had, which enabled the future to come to pass, uh, was his fault. Not only because he didn't save her and didn't let Bones save her, but of course, you know, I sort of joke about that, uh, like embracing people in the street, right? As he's embracing her, Bones is embracing the, embracing the bum recapitulated, right, by the sort of awkward man embraces that are happening there at the end uh, as Bones come out, comes out and sees them again. Um, but then, of course, most poignantly, as Bones attempts to save her, which is the thing that, of course, they were supposed to prevent, and Kirk prevents it by, um, by embracing him, right, by holding him so that he can't go. Um, so... Yeah, I, uh, um, it is, uh, a lot. Now, I, I saw several of you talking about how, um, uh, the, the question of, like, what, you know, does their coming, is their coming back what gives her this insight, right? This connection to the future. That's possible, right? Um, and we do see that they seem to be involved in it much more thoroughly all the way through, right? Again, you know, they, they, whether she dies or whether she lives, both, like, they would have been responsible for either one of those outcomes, it turns out. Um, but we don't, um, we don't really, we don't, it's never explained. We don't really know. Um, most of those questions, like, we can perceive 
the irony. This is the thing that I think is so fascinating about this episode. The extent to which it does not try to explain almost anything. That business about time like a river that Spock does while he's tucking in his shirt is almost the only explanation that it attempts at all, right? After that, it just shows us these things, enables us to perceive the ironies, not just the emotional complexities, but these larger ironies, and then leaves it, right? And backs away from it and leaves us to ask, continue, ask all of these questions. But wait, why did this happen? And what if this happened? And and then we get the end. Time has resumed its shape. All is as it was before. Many such journeys are possible. Let me be your gateway. Captain, the Enterprise is up there. They're asking if we want to beam up. line of the episode. What is the conclusion? Let's get the hell out of here, right? The gate explains it, right, in its non-explanatory, bombadillian kind of way, uh, and we don't get any explanation. It's just like, and notice all of their questions. What did they come down here for? Right? They came down to this planet in order to discover some things. This episode starts with them in some kind of crisis, right? Trying to figure out what is causing the thing that's making things happen to the Enterprise, and they're in distress, right? So they find this energy source, and so they go down to try to figure out how to solve the problem. In the end, they just they just back away, right? With no questions answered. I mean, almost... Uh, the, there's only one answer to any question that they get in the entire episode. And that answer is, Edith Keeler must die. Right? That's all they know, for sure. Um, And uh, it's... uh, So, yeah, Estelle, I do think he's saying, let's get out of here and not mess with this again, right? They 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 don't want any part of the... And think about the promise of that. Think about this gateway, right? I have been waiting since, you know, your son was kind of hot to... Uh, to, like, answer a question, a qu- like, as if there's a specific question, right? As if there's, like, a big reveal. Like, this is, were you the one destined to come to an- ask me the question? And then he's like, who are you, right? Um, no, we're just, we're just, we're just leaving it, right? Um, this thing knows, you know, has access to, like, it is on the, um, it, this is the gateway to eternity, right? This is the gateway to forever, and, um, we're just, we're just going to leave it. Right. Um, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, T joint says it's uh, it's sort of Lovecraftian in its unknowability. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, I think it's, you know, so remember what I said earlier about like not asking questions of Star Trek episodes. I don't mean that as an insult. You know, I don't mean that to be like, well, you know, this stuff is like so poorly put together that like once you start really looking at it, it all falls to pieces. I don't mean that. I mean, that is a little bit true of some of the things, of some of its elements and of some of its episodes. But my point is not that, uh, you know, that makes Star Trek substandard, but rather 
that's the exactly sort of the direction that I get from uh, uh, from Star Trek. You know, like it, it, the show itself is not trying to answer these questions, especially I think in the in the the original series, so many things never get explained. Right, um, so many things about the you know, there's so many weird things that happen that we don't get, um, uh, that, that are never explained to us, um, and are given not even a, 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 a serious attempt at an explanation. The show's not interested in that. Instead, it asks of us a different thing. And here in this episode, it seems to me to be asking us to sort of perceive the complexity, uh, to begin to kind of think about the complexity of time, but it's not going to give us an answer. Right. If you're looking for something like, here's how time travel works and let us investigate the, you know, like timey wimey elements of of time travel. um, This episode isn't going to give us any answers. Okay, Edith Keeler must die. That's the only answer it'll give us. Um, But it um, um, it doesn't. It's not going to lay things out. It's not going to it's not going to build that kind of a world. It's not what it does. And that's interesting. Right. Exactly. Cass, it starts by saying it's beyond our understanding and it follows through on that um, all the way through. Uh, so it's cool. Like I said, it's not, you know, I, 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 I fell in love with Deep Space Nine because I do like, you know, long form, consistent narrative and world building and, and sub creation. Uh, and I found Deep Space Nine really compelling and really interesting. Um, but uh, Star Trek does a different thing. And that's a really interesting thing too, and uh, and you know the way that it raises stuff. So, um, so the action figure character is the woman, Edith Keeler, who must die. She's the action figure. That we, did, did, have we given away the action figure yet? Uh, Door Ward, have we given that away yet? I don't. Uh, I don't remember if we have. Um, I don't think so. We have an Edith Keeler action figure to give away as a, as a as a as a door prize in our raffles. Uh, so we'll we'll do another raffle uh, before too long. Uh, but, uh, but yes, exactly the, the non-action action figure, like the, the inaction figure who is just sort of there at the center trying to tell everybody to be peaceful and foretelling the future. Um, I agree. Alan's compass. That's what I find so hilarious about the action figure concept as applied to Edith Cure, right? I mean, of all of the, I mean, it's hard to imagine a character, even like a minor one shot character like this. Uh, in in Star Trek, who is sort of less appropriate to make an action figure of. Um, DMA wonders if it comes with a truck. <laughs> I don't... Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, cool. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... Interesting. <laughs> All right. Um, any, uh, oh, Yana says that there's a short story about the Edith Keeler lives timeline. Of course there is. See, this is the thing, you know, Yana, you've, there, there, there are several times that you've brought up, uh, you know, books and stories that have been written around Star Trek and stuff. And that's, you know, I, I, it's because I think I'm not the only one who shares this proclivity towards, uh, you know, sort of sub-creation and, and uh, consistent world building and stuff. Uh, and so the, the impulse to fill it out, right? The impulse to, uh, to, to, to fill in the background, uh, and conceive of these things in a consistent, I mean, you know, for many people, that's going to be irresistible. And again, I think that's why we begin to see that 
emerging, not all the time, but more and more. I would particularly point, as I, I mentioned the Borg and the Klingons, the Klingons especially, especially throughout, um, obviously in Deep Space Nine, but even before Deep Space Nine, in the next generation, um, you know, think about the whole Gowron thread of episodes, right? When um, when Gowron becomes the Chancellor, or is that his title? Anyway, when he becomes the Klingon dude, um, you know, the way that uh, uh, both Worf and Picard are being connected and related to the, to Klingon culture, and the more and more we get to see um, of of all of these things, it, it's it's we become submerged in these subcultures, and we get it in some smaller ways um, in other places. Uh, you know, like uh, again, I'm thinking of of the next generation here. Um, even with recurring characters like Loxana Troy uh, and the Beta Z thing, that's more of a running joke than a fully developed sub-creation, but it's, it works. I like it. It's interesting. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, Chancellor I thought of the High Council. I, th- I thought Chancellor was his title, Chancellor Galron. Anyway, um, so we, we see these things beginning to develop even within, you know, the two older series, and then they... Uh, uh, you know, and with the Borg, but then Blue Wizard, of course. Then, then we get we get the Borg more fully developed uh, than in Voyager. One of my favorite things about season four. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's uh, watching that impulse kind of go back and forth in Star Trek is really cool. And then again, I just loved when they threw caution to the wind and of course was after Gene Roddenberry was dead and perhaps might have something to do with it. Um, and just went, went all in on the, uh, on the, the internal consistency sub creation route, uh, with deep space nine. Um, yeah, yeah, cool. All right. Um, so, uh, I'm on schedule and I'm ending on time. Thanks everybody for your participation in this. I'm, you know, I may come back and revisit some, tra- it's going to be hard not to do any deep space nine. Right. Um, but, um, we'll, uh, so, you know, maybe I'll get to come back and do a little bit more of this. Um, you know, there's uh, there's much more to be discussed by the way. So if you, if you're wondering, the three Deep Space Nine episodes that were nominated, that were part of our voting system, were In the Pale Moonlight uh, and uh, The Visitor, which got a shockingly small number of votes, and uh, uh, Far Beyond the Stars. Of the three, I would, uh, if, I, if I would have chosen one of those three, I loved In the Pale Moonlight. I loved The Visitor. I would have chosen Far Beyond the Stars. Uh, uh, that's the... Uh, 20th century science fiction magazine editorial team episode um, with nobody in makeup, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, I would have absolutely loved uh, to talk about that. Um, so that one totally would have been my my, my my DS9 choice had I chosen one of them. Um, I'm not sure which of the Voyager episodes I would have chosen. The Beowulf episode, of course, is, you know, it's compelling in its own way. Though both of the other two that were nominated, uh, Nemesis and Living Witness from season four, uh, I thought were better episodes. But uh, but you know, there's the Beowulf thing, so that's kind of cool. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, bookish girl Voyager. I was not sold on Voyager for a while. I was I was it was dragging a bit for me uh, at the beginning. Um, but I again season four. It just it it, it wasn't. Ju- I mean, people have you know been kind of telling me like you've got to wait until seven of nine shows up, and I get it, right? I get that too. Um, she's been a great character and very interesting, but it's not just that. 
I mean, it's a whole bunches of episodes that she's not even in consistently. The, um, uh, you know, the, it's anyway, I just season four really blew me out of the water. So I was, I was pretty impressed about that. Um, yeah. Uh, Blue Wizard, you've only watched The Next Generation in DS9. The original's totally worth it, right? I mean, you gotta... You, it's hard going back. It's 50 years old now, right? So you're going back to, you know, uh, 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 50 years old, uh, you know, special effects and Enterprise Bridge uh, and, uh, you know, and all these, you know, and the, the musical stingers and uh, the different acting and all that kind of thing. Um, but it's... Um, it's it's I mean it's it's still a really fascinating show. Um, I would definitely uh, I would definitely strongly recommend the original as well. Um, I think um, yeah, Sam. I even watched the animated series. I was less thrilled with the animated series, but I'm a completionist, so I watched the animated series. Um, I have not done Enterprise. Uh, or Discovery yet. I'm waiting on those. I may watch Enterprise because I'm a completionist, but I'm gonna when I get to the end of Voyager uh, and the and the movies, I'm gonna be I'm I'm gonna be done for now. Uh, I may at a future time come back to uh, come back to the others, but we'll uh, we'll we'll see <laughs> we'll we'll see for now. Those the four main series, at least the four that I knew of but had never watched all of, uh, had been my goal for this little. Uh, for this little project, uh, of mine. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy. My, by the way, what is my next project? After I finish watching Star Trek, what I would really, I might not do it immediately cause I've watched a bunch of them kind of recently. What I would like to do is do the Marvel cinematic universe in chronological order. That's what I would like to do. The TV shows, the movies, put it all together. That would be fun. Uh, but we'll see. <laughs> We'll see what I have time for. i got to do something while I do the dishes, though. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org slash fund.